Hello, sports fans, and welcome to Let Me Speak, the show that shares sports' biggest headlines explained, uninterrupted, and maybe a little audacious. I'm Joe Braverman, and today's topics we'll be discussing are which NBA playoff team is in the best position heading into the semis, plus thoughts from early second round action in the NHL playoffs, and Did Naomi Osaka change the perception of athletes after pulling out of the French Open? It's episode 26 of Let Me Speak, and it starts right now. June, everybody, here on Thursday, June 3rd, 2021, heading into episode 26 of Let Me Speak. Thank you very much for tuning in. Hope everyone had a safe Memorial Day weekend this past weekend. I myself enjoyed it very much heading down to the Cape. The only problem was I wish it wouldn't rain every single day that I was down there. But other than that, it was good to be down there. But the holiday weekend did not stop the playoffs. And we got to get into the NBA because no one can stop talking about it. And in the Eastern Conference, their first rounds have come to an end. We know what the semis are going to look like. And of course, the matchup everyone is talking about. Two powerhouses. The Milwaukee Bucks at number three. And the Nets at number two. Now... I think it's going to be extremely entertaining regardless because these are two great offenses. I I fully understand that. Like, when you look at what Brooklyn did against that Celtics team, yes, I know it was a depleted Celtics team, not fully healthy, but still, they just looked unreal in that series. And they maybe have, like, one or two games where they were a little bit off. I mean, Joe Harris was the leading scorer in uh, Game 2. But if Joe Harris is one of your leading scorers outside of the big three, that's a pretty good roster that you got. But, I mean, the last two games, game four and game five, KD putting up 42-24, and 24, Kyrie being the ultimate villain in Boston, putting up 39-25, and then James Harden. Game four, career-high 18 assists to go with 23 points, and then finishing off Boston with a 34-point triple-double. I mean, that offense, we know that's how this team is going to win it. Because head coach Steve Nash has a great plan when you have three prolific scorers like Durant, Irving, and Harden. Because you can have at least one of them on the floor. Sometimes two through all 48 minutes. Or most 48 minutes, I should say. If it's a blowout, then... You can take them all off the floor when you know the game's in hand. But it was kind of interesting during that Celtics series to see Nash keep them in with about, you know, two minutes left. It was game four. The game was already in hand, but Durant was still out there. And Harden was still out there near the end. It was kind of an interesting strategy for Steve Nash. But I think this offense, if Brooklyn's going to win, it's going to be because of this offense now their other pieces are gonna have to help him out obviously I trust Joe Harris I trust Joe Harris 
I think Blake Griffin, he's kind of hot and cold. You know, I I think he can have one good game, you know, if Kyrie is struggling or Harden is struggling and all that. Maybe he could come through, put up maybe about 15 or something like that. And Bruce Brown, I was very impressed to see him come off the bench. That's an energy guy you want off the bench for Brooklyn. Uh, I I think they have a good eight-man, maybe seven-man rotation, I would say. But I think there are still questions about their defense. Because when you look at the numbers, they're still allowing 112 points per game. And you have to remember what they did. This was a Celtics team. I know Jason Tatum went absolutely nuts, but... There was no Jalen Brown. There was no Kemba Walker. It was kind of a depleted offense a little bit and a depleted team all around for the Celtics. So don't get totally overhyped in this Brooklyn team because their defense still needs a lot of work. Blake Griffin is basically their small ball center. He's not what you would call a defensive force or a rim protector. That's the biggest thing for Brooklyn is, you know, they still have questions and This is the team where if they put up 140, you have to put up 143 to beat them. That's going to be the biggest thing. But on the other side, when you're talking about Milwaukee, I mean, they are well-rested after sweeping the Miami Heat. And they went out and made a statement against the Eastern Conference champions from a year ago in the Heat. And really the biggest thing for me that I see with Milwaukee is is the Greek freak. Giannis just has to impose his will. And this is a real gut check for Antetokounmpo because when he became a superstar, which was, I would say, the 2016-2017 season, he's had two first-round exits in his first two. Then 2019, loses in the Eastern Conference Finals to the eventual champion, the Raptors. And 2020, last year in the bubble, to get upset by Miami. So this is going to be real important. For Giannis right here. He needs to show up and break through in the playoffs. Because when I look at defensively what Brooklyn has, no one can stop Antetokounmpo. Nobody can. And I think Giannis is going to have to put up a bunch of 30-point games, get himself some rebounds, get some double-doubles going in there. But I think Giannis has to be the star. He has to be the biggest star out of... Everyone on the floor, including the big three for Brooklyn. But I think what I also have with confidence for Milwaukee is their toughness. I think toughness down low. I love the midseason addition of P.J. Tucker. I think he's a guy who's all about defense. He's all about toughness. I like that. I like Bobby Portis as well. He's got some toughness as well. And then obviously Brooke Lopez. He can stretch the floor. But he's going to have to be a rim protector. I mean, you're... 6'11", 7 feet for a reason. Impose your will when you're 7 feet. Because Brooklyn doesn't have that size. Milwaukee does. I think that's going to be huge for the Bucks if they can get the advantage. Now, the loss of Dante DiVincenzo. I think that definitely hurts. He's one of your better perimeter defenders on the team. But you have to remember who else you have. You got Drew Holiday for moments like this. You have... Chris Middleton for moments like this. They can do it on both ends. And when they're double-teaming Giannis on the drive, all you got to do if you're Middleton or Holiday is just stand within range and Giannis will find you. 
Giannis will find you, and you just got to make down the shots. You got to hit the shots. If you ask me from initial thoughts what I think, I think I trust Milwaukee a little bit more because playoff history shows that great defenses go a long way. And Brooklyn, they're better defensively from when they first acquired James Harden and became the super team, but they're still not there yet. They're still not there yet. I think they'll have a little bit of problems with Milwaukee. I think this could go a long way. I like I like Milwaukee in six. I think Milwaukee's going to pull it out initially. You know, this is before one game even gets played. So that's what I see coming out of this series is the Bucks. They have, you know, Brooklyn has the talent, but they don't have the defense. That's all it is. And they don't have one guy who could stop Giannis Antetokounmpo. I mean, maybe they finally play DeAndre Jordan in this series. Maybe. Just to get a good body on Giannis. But anyone else, I have a hard time seeing them stop Giannis. And the playoffs are all about defense. So I will take Milwaukee in six for this series. Now, the other Eastern Conference series, we just found out because both teams ended their series last night. We know it's going to be the number five Hawks and the number one 76ers. Philly taking care of the Wizards and Atlanta closing out the surprise New York Knicks. Now, when you look at it on paper, it does look like a little bit of a mismatch, but I think the ultimate deciding factor in this series is going to be the health of Joel Embiid. I mean, this is the possible MVP, possible runner-up, but that offense drives through Embiid. That team will drive through the process. Now, the offense, yeah, they looked okay. Like, they were fine, but this was the Wizards. You know, this is the Hawks. I think they're going to be fine, but, you know, they're not going to be dominant. I mean, we saw last night Seth Curry have a great 30-point game for Philly. And then Tobias Harris picking up the offense a little bit, scoring 28 points. And then Ben Simmons, obviously, putting up 19 points and being that playmaker at the point guard position. But Ben Simmons is going to have to shoot. That is going to be absolutely important for this Philly team, especially if they don't have Joel Embiid. Because, like I said, the offense runs through Embiid, and his presence down low and outside is the big difference maker that opens up guys like Seth Curry and Tobias Harris and Danny Green, just to name a few guys. Ben Simmons, we know he can drive it to the bucket, but he's got to shoot free throws. He's got to shoot outside shots because look at what Atlanta has down low. They have a very underrated center in Clint Capella. Not only is he a great finisher inside, but he is the perfect rim protector for a team like Atlanta, who's still a little bit young. Capella has the playoff experience in in his tenure with the Houston Rockets a couple of years ago. So Capella is going to be tough inside. He's definitely going to limit Ben Simmons' ability to finish at the rim. And, you know, most times we're probably going to see DeAndre Hunter or maybe Kevin Herter or Bogdanovich, Gallinari. We're probably going to see those defenders on Simmons. And those guys, they're no slouches. You know, they'll they'll make it tough. But Simmons, the big factor is if he can shoot from outside, this will be a dominant team. This will be a dominant team if Ben Simmons can shoot. If he has a great shooting game, then it will be a wrap. Now, for Atlanta, their offense, obviously we know it runs through Trey Young. Trey Young is one of the next best superstars 
that this league has to offer. You know, if Luka Doncic wasn't playing out of his mind, this guy would be the talk of the NBA playoffs for the kind of offense that he puts up. But we saw it with the Boston Celtics and Jason Tatum that one man taking over the offensive load is not going to do it. Trey Young is going to need some help, and he's going to need some outside shooting. He needs John Collins. He needs Bogdanovich. He needs Gallinari. He needs those players to really step up and just be ready when they're double-teaming Trey Young and they're blocking his shots inside. That's going to be the biggest thing. Now, I still think Atlanta's a little bit young for the moment. I think Trey Young... He's definitely going to be huge next year. I mean, if he's doing this in his first playoff appearance and he's already won a series, I mean, I'd call that a success for Atlanta. A huge success for Atlanta. But I just think they're not there yet. Philly has a little bit more experience. I wouldn't be surprised if this goes a long way. Regardless of whether Embiid is healthy or not, I think Philly will get out of this series. I just think Atlanta's still a little bit too young. They'll get much more experience come next year. But I like Philly to get out of this, I'd say, in five or six games as well. Again, this is before any games get played, dictating if Joel Embiid is healthy or not. I think regardless, I think the Sixers have the pieces. I think they also have great defenders like Matisse Thibel and Maxi coming off the bench. I think... Philadelphia will head to the Eastern Conference Finals out of this series. On the other side for the Western Conference, there's only one team at the moment who has qualified to the next round, and that is the Utah Jazz. Now, I like Utah very much. I think they can make it all the way to the Eastern Conference Finals, especially, you know, they will have a tough matchup, which we'll get into the next series, either the Mavericks or the Clippers, but I like the Jazz. I like all the pieces that they have. I think they have it from top to bottom. Great defense, size down low with Rudy Gobert. They got a great superstar to lean on in Donovan Mitchell. But I will say, the Grizzlies, watch out for Memphis in the next few years. If Ja Morant is doing this in his first postseason action, once they get some more experience, they are going to be a very dangerous team in the Western Conference. But I like the Jazz. I think they have it great from top to bottom. It's going to be tough, though, considering who they're going to have to play next. And that would be between either the Mavericks or the Clippers. And to get into that series, whew, that is entertaining. Now, last week, I did say that Dallas, I think, has the advantage because they went up 2 nothing. But the Clippers really showing some fight when they tied it up at 2-2. Two two. But then last night, Luka Doncic. 42 points, 14 assists, 8 rebounds. The only other guy who scored in double figures was Tim Hardaway Jr. at 20. That it was very surprising to me because I still think that, you know, this supporting cast for Dallas, I have much more faith in because you got Hardaway Jr., you got Finney Smith, Porzingis, Kleber, Powell, Brunson, Richardson. I, I like those pieces. But similar to Joel Embiid, the health of Luka Doncic will be absolutely important. Now, obviously, the injury did not affect him too much. That next strain, you know, bless bless Luka for even going out there in Game 4 when it definitely looked like he was in serious pain with that next strain. I mean, props to him. But 
putting up 42 points and being one game away heading home to getting into that next round. I I like Dallas. I mean, I even think Dallas could pull off the upset over the Jazz if they could get it because, you know, you got Luka Doncic doing Luka Doncic things. You put your best defender on him, and he's still knocking down step-back threes and stuff like that. But, you know, talking about the Clippers, though, I mean, I did say Kawhi Leonard and Paul George are going to have to do more. I mean, last night, Paul George only scored 23, and Kawhi Leonard only scored 20. Okay? They were the only plus-minuses outside of Reggie Jackson for the Clippers. I don't have any faith in this Clippers team. I think if they do get out of this series with Dallas and they force a Game 7 and win it, you know, I think the Jazz will knock them off, though. Because I think the Jazz are fully complete. I like Donovan Mitchell, as I said, as a superstar. And just just Kawhi Leonard and Paul George aren't showing up like the superstars that they should be. They're they're not. And Nicholas Batum putting up 10 points. Marcus Morris Sr. putting up 16 points. Yeah, that's great. But this offense is going to have to do a little bit more. But let's also remember that they don't have size down low. And that's hurting when you have Doncic driving in. You have the 7-3 monster in Boban Marjanovic. And then, of course... Chris Porzingis and all the shooting. Just the defense isn't there for the Clippers. So I still am going to ride with the Mavericks on this one. I think they'll close it out at home, game six. I think they are going to pull this off. But let's also remember that the road team has won every game this series so far. The road team. So, I mean, it wouldn't be surprising to see this game go seven. I Maybe I'd probably lean towards that versus maybe Dallas clear closing it out tomorrow night but you know give me give me the Mavericks I am going to take the Mavericks to to beat the Clippers that's what I ultimately think for this series and then it will be Jazz and Mavericks now the other conference now the other series obviously Denver and Portland probably as tight if not tighter than the Mavericks Clippers series but I mean talk about Damian Lillard the ultimate factor for the Trailblazers is will Damian Lillard get some help somewhere? Are they going to get some help from somewhere? That's going to be the huge thing because, come on, 55 points, 55 points, and 10 assists. That's the first time that's happened ever, ever in a game, in a playoff game, in double overtime, okay? So, to me, it's, are they going to get other scoring? Because, yeah, Damian Lillard put up 55 the other night in Game 5. But, what about their other guys? C.J. McCollum only had 18. Robert Covington had 19. Yusuf Nurkic had 13. Carmelo Anthony only had 8. And 30 points off the bench. That is going to be very important. And we know this team struggles to defend. We know that. And... Obviously, no one expected Austin Rivers to have a huge game. And we know the offense runs through Jokic. But I just think the Blazers have a hard time defending. And like I said earlier on, you win if you can defend. And the Blazers are struggling to do that. They're struggling to do that against this Nuggets team. And keep in mind, this is a Nuggets team without without Jamal Murray, their second-best option, the Nuggets. And... That's really opened it up for Rivers to have such a big game like he did. But, I mean, when you look at 
what they're doing. They gave up 109, 128, 120, 95, and then 147. It's all going to come down to if they can defend and if Damian Lillard gets some help. I think the Nuggets will close out this series. You know, this could go seven games. I wouldn't be surprised if it goes seven games. But I would definitely say that the Nuggets have the advantage over the Blazers. I, you know, I still root for the Blazers. I think Damian Lillard is probably one of the most overlooked players in the entire league. But, and I root for him. But he just doesn't have that that scoring help. That's going to be the huge thing. CJ McCollum is going to have to show that he is a number two option. And basically go step for step with his teammate Lillard. But of course, the other series that's going on that everyone can't stop talking about are the Suns and the Lakers. Why? Because a LeBron James team is on the verge of being eliminated in the first round, I think for the first time in his entire career. I think that I, from what I am going off with my memory, I can't remember a time that LeBron James has lost in the first round. I mean, I know he's lost in the second round and obviously... You know, a couple of years ago with Cleveland, he went seven games with Indiana. But I, I do not, I don't remember LeBron going out in the first round. But if the Lakers are going to be able to come back from this series, force a game seven, and then get out of that game seven, it's all going to be on Anthony Davis. Similar to Embiid, if he's on the floor, then the Lakers have a much better shot. Now, I think, you know, they have said he's a game time decision for tonight's game and obviously we'll know the results of this game by when this episode comes out but Anthony Davis is gonna be the difference you know even if he's not a semblance of himself this Lakers team just they're a little bit in flux right now obviously you have LeBron who's being LeBron but Schroeder's been very uncomfortable since joining the Lakers KCP is dealing with an injury they don't have a ton of presence inside. Montrezl Harrell hasn't lived up to it. Marcus Hall hasn't lived up to it. I just don't know if I, I trust this Lakers team, even if they do get out of this series, to put up a fight or even go a far way if they take on the Nuggets or the Blazers. So I do have confidence in the Suns. We know what the Suns can do. Chris Paul's got that shoulder back to almost 100%. He's a semblance of what he was early on in the series before that injury, and then obviously facilitating Devin Booker, DeAndre Ayton, and Cameron Payne. I gotta say, that's an underrated name you gotta watch out for for the Suns team. Coming off the bench, he's a real energy guy. He might not put up huge stats. He might have one good scoring game now and again, but he's that energy guy off the bench that Phoenix absolutely loves. So watch out for Payne, possibly, if the Suns go on a deep run. I think if I have confidence in someone, I would have to go with the Suns. They just feel a lot more stable than what the Lakers look right now. And I I think, you know, depending on who comes out of that Nuggets Blazers series, I have confidence that they could go to the conference finals. I, I really do. I think they're still a little bit young, so the inexperience might be there, obviously with Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton still being a little young. But we've seen early on, Playoff jitters mean absolutely nothing to this Phoenix team. So those are my thoughts heading into the late stages of the first round, heading into the second round of the NBA playoffs. But one thing's for sure, it's sure to be an exciting time if you're an NBA fan.
the NBA isn't the only league in their playoffs right now, we have to talk about the NHL. They're just getting their legs under them, hitting the ice for the second round. We'll find out who the division winners will be after this round from the Central, the East, the North, and the West. And we got to start with the Central Division and talk about the Tampa Bay Lightning going up 2-0 right now on the Carolina Hurricanes in their series. Game 3 tonight in Tampa. And really just the the one thing I see when I'm looking at this this series so far is the Hurricanes. They're just giving away the puck too much. That's really all it is right now. And they just don't have... They don't have that firepower, I guess, that Tampa does. They're a good team, don't get me wrong. But they're minus 17 on giveaways right now. So it's all about just controlling the puck and really just taking advantage because this is a Tampa Bay team that makes very few mistakes. And when you get on the power play, you have to take advantage of it. But right now, the Hurricanes are only about 19% on the power play. That's... Sixth out of the eight teams in the playoffs remaining. So, I don't, Carolina has just put themselves in a hole early on, especially losing home ice. You know, Tampa, like I talked about last week with Pat Pat Sullivan, who joined. These are very hostile environments when we're seeing fans go back. And if there's one environment that every NHL fan knows can get crazy, it's Tampa. It is Tampa, Florida. So if you're giving the Lightning this kind of advantage heading back home, this is this is exactly where Tampa wants to be. They're now in the driver's seat, and they're just too good to allow to be capitalizing on mistakes because they're second among playoff teams with a 36% power play. So we know how good this team is. Like I talk about week after week after week, but I would say the huge difference right now in this series has been in net for the Lightning. Andre Vasilevsky. What a great first two games he's had in this series so far. He has been the main reason that the Lightning have the advantage right now. 68 saves on 70 shots. He's only allowed two goals. And this is a Carolina team that topped the league in shots per game. Not just in the regular season, but in the postseason as well. The Hurricanes get shots off. But Vasilevsky is just playing phenomenal in net. And he's going to be that ultimate difference maker that I think Tampa gets out of this series. I think getting established early on, kind of similar to what I talked about with the Dallas Mavericks in the NBA series against the Clippers. When you get that 2-0 series lead, you have all the momentum right now. And it's on you to carry that energy and carry that momentum heading on to your home arena, your home ice, home court, whatever it may be. If you get that lead early on, you're in the driver's seat, and basically it's on you. You can either close it out right away, or you got to be extremely, extremely ready. When you have this 2-0 series lead, it is on you to really keep that energy up. Because, yeah, you can let Carolina get one game, but you're still in that advantage so this is all all going to be on Tampa if they don't shoot themselves in the foot then they will get out of this series clean they'll get out of it and be the representative out of the central division that's on me what I see I think Tampa 
has the team. They have the pieces. Vasilevsky has been great in net. I like Tampa to get out of this series. Now, in the Eastern Division, that series a little more close between the number four Islanders and the number three Bruins. They're tied right now at one apiece. And early on, obviously, we'll talk about the Bruins side of it when we get into our Let's Get Local segment. But just from what I'm seeing, the Bruins are the better team. I think they have more talent because they have great offensive pieces, obviously with the perfection line, Taylor Hall. They have a great goalkeeper in Tukarask. But this is an Islanders team that hangs tough. There's someone you have to put the sword into their heart to kill them and let die. You got to make sure they die first. You can't just hit them with one punch and let them stagger. Because this Islanders team capitalizing in game two on a poor turnover from Jeremy Lauzon in OT, tying up the series. And remember, this was an Islanders team that was up 3-1 in that third period. So they hang tough. I know they blew it and get into overtime. But this New York team is still tough. You gave them one game. Casey Sisikis on that breakaway game winner gave the Islanders a chance. They're now contenders back into this series. I will say it was an interesting choice to switch goaltenders going from Sorokin to Varlamov in Game 2. Because when you look at what Sorokin has done so far in the playoffs, he he was 4-0 and before that Game 1 loss where he gave up 5 goals and lost 5-2. to And obviously you saw it pay off with Varlamov stopping 39 of the 42 shots by the Bruins. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens. But this is an Islanders team has that's done that before. If one of their keepers has a really bad game, they'll just make the switch. They don't want to put them back on the ice to continue that role and have that play in the back of their mind. They just reset. They go to another goaltender, and I think that's what makes the Islanders so dangerous is they know what to do after a loss, especially a loss like that when it was 5-2 to in Game 1. They come back. They win it in overtime. But really the only way I see Boston losing this series is if they hurt themselves. Because they've they've played great so far. Three out of four on the power play so far. David Pasternak scoring a hat trick in game one in front of a massive TD Garden crowd. But just from top to bottom, I like this Bruins team. I think they're going to find a way to regather themselves. I think eventually they come out of this series. They will win. And they will play the winner of the Central Division team. That's just what I think. Because I think the Bruins have a lot more talent than the Islanders. You know, they were down 3-1, to one, but they have the pieces to come back and force that overtime. We saw it in the previous series against the Capitals that even if they fall behind, they'll find a way to claw back into it. So I like Boston to beat the Islanders in this series. Now, moving on to the Western Division. Boy, the Colorado Avalanche built a legit avalanche on the Golden Knights for these first two games. I mean, that first game... Between Vegas and Colorado, what a blowout that was. An absolute blowout by Colorado. I mean, 7-1 to one against the Golden Knights. I mean, I will say the loss of Ryan Reeves, having him suspended for two games, is absolutely huge for Vegas. But, you know, they do get to go back to home ice. The series isn't over. Obviously, losing that 
second game in overtime just last night absolutely hurt. It hurt them bad in overtime because they had a chance. They had a chance. They were down 2-1 early on the first. They tied it up, and then it was basically even. Even. But Philip Grubauer in net, 39 saves for Colorado. I mean, the pick that me and Pat made last week about Colorado, I would say is a pretty safe pick right now. I definitely expected a little bit more fight from the Golden Knights. I think they're going to get it. I think they'll pull off a couple of games. I can see this going six, but I just think Colorado's a little bit too much. Too much. I think Rottenen getting that offense going on for Colorado. I like them to come out of the West. You know, I wouldn't sleep on the Golden Knights. They still could come out of the series, but just looking at what the series has been like so far, Colorado has the advantage right now, and I would pick them to come out of this series so far through the first two games. Now, the other game that happened last night was in the North Division, and how about the Cinderella Canadians? The Montreal Canadiens pulling off the 5-3 win in Game 1 over the Winnipeg Jets. And the big factor, obviously, was the Canadians only had one day of rest, pulling off that huge upset against Toronto, which, by the way, Toronto, people will say they blew it, but they did not have their second-best player in John Tavares, so... It's a lot of back and forth with that. But the Canadians, they were still in the action. The Jets had a long time off. They swept the Oilers, and they had a lot of time off. So there was a little bit of rust. And obviously you saw that in the first period when they went down 3-1. And that was the big difference, was that first period. Because the two-goal difference ended up being the final result. And the Canadians, they were just well-rested. I think they got a good game one. I still think the Jets are going to bounce back, but what they cannot have is that absolutely dirty hit from Mark Shifley. I mean, Jake Evans got carted out on that one. Absolute dirty hit after the empty net goal and basically turning him inside out. He should be suspended the rest of the playoffs. The rest of the playoffs. Because that was absolutely dirty. A Totally uncalled for right there by Shifley. But I think the Jets, they'll they'll find a way to come back. They were just a little bit rusty. You could see it in the second period, then the third period. They got their legs back under them from all the time off. I think they'll bounce back in this series. And I think they'll either make it competitive or they'll come out of it. I, I still think they'll come out of it. I think the Canadians, they were just fresh. They were healthy. And, you know, they get this one game. They could still make it competitive. But just for me, I like Winnipeg to come out of this one, you know, as long as they don't have any more dirty hits. But, you know, we're talking round two in the NHL playoffs. They're just getting underway. There's still plenty of action on the ice to be seen. Now on to our third topic, and this is a story that broke early in the week that has very serious significance. Obviously, it has to deal with Naomi Osaka pulling out of the French Open after being fined for not speaking to the media, and that wasn't the surprising thing. The surprising thing was the big message that Osaka sent out saying that she was suffering from depression and social anxiety which is very, very serious, and it really got me thinking about, okay, what is now the relationship between athletes 
and the media and can something be coordinated and I did have a couple thoughts about it which is going to be the subject for this week's edition of Hot Takes. Now don't get me wrong. Depression, social anxiety, very, very important. Any kind of mental illness should be priority number one. So I absolutely do not blame Naomi Osaka for taking this route. But this is on the committee for women's tennis. Mainly the French Tennis Federation for this French Open. Because let's recap what happened. At the end of the week last week, Osaka said she would not be speaking to the media. She already said that. She already established it. And so rather than saying, you know what, you're going to be fined and worse are going to come. How about coordinating something? Coordinating some kind of alternate or something like that rather than making this a huge obligation. Okay, so I, Gilles Moretin, the French Tennis Federation president, is an absolute clown. He's a clown for this. Because like I said, Osaka announced ahead of time. There should have been some kind of coordination. If Osaka privately said, listen, I'm dealing with a lot of stuff right now. It would be best if I didn't talk to the media. The easiest thing would be just to be, okay, we'll come up with a compromise or something like that. But instead, you just say, you're not going to talk to the media. You're going to lose your money. And if you do it again, you're not even going to be a part of this tournament, which is an absolute disgusting act. And let's also keep in mind that the same guy, Moretton, the president of the FTF, French Tennis Federation, he put out a statement and then he walked away. He didn't even take any questions, okay? This is an absolute disgrace. This is nothing on Osaka or her team. Yes, there might have been some miscommunication or anything like that, but this is all on the French Tennis Federation, okay? If you are not going to compromise with an athlete who's dealing with a mental health crisis like social anxiety and or depression, then you don't even deserve any kind of legitimacy, okay? This is a stain on the French Open. You know, I'm very surprised that not more people are boycotting or anything like that because we have seen the reaction on social media. Everyone is behind Naomi Osaka. And obviously, you have to look at the spotlight that she put herself into, okay? Because everyone is different. Some people enjoy the attention. Some people don't. Like Osaka said, she's introverted. She has anxiety when she has to talk to the media, okay? Everyone's different. But when she won the U.S. Open, which turned her into a star three years ago, okay, that's where she cited getting sort of nervous and all that social anxiety and stuff like that, which is totally fine. Everyone's different. Not a lot of people like talking to the media, and not a lot of people like being the center of attention. That's okay. That's totally okay. But the thing with now compared to maybe back then is being a part of the media or doing any kind of media session was in your contract, obviously. And most athletes would say, okay, I'd be fine with doing this. Will I like it? No. I mean, look at Marshawn Lynch. I'm just here so I won't get fined. He doesn't 
like talking to the media because he doesn't like being that center of attention. And what does the media do when he doesn't want to be the center of attention? They turn him into the center of attention by saying, oh, what is he doing to this team for not attending the media? Okay, this just shows how important the media and athletes relationship is. I mean, look at what Kyrie Irving did just this past season for the NBA. He took some time away because his head wasn't there. It That's all you had to say. If he has any kind of mental health sort of thing and he needs a break, that's fine. That's fine. But then he gets turned into the center of attention during the Boston series. Maybe he didn't want that. Maybe he did. That's hard to say because obviously no one knows Kyrie personally to give us a legitimate answer to that. But if you have a, someone like Osaka who doesn't want to be this kind of center of attention, then respect it. Respect it, okay? That's on the media. That's on the WTA, the Women's Tennis Association, to come up with any kind of compromise. And that's really on the entire league. Every single league, the NHL, the MLB, NFL, everyone has to come up with that compromise for people who don't feel comfortable with it. Obviously, it's in the terms of when athletes sign their contract. But if they say, listen, I'm not going to be huge on the media. I'm not going to always have a reporter at me on all times. Okay, maybe find a middle ground where they say, why don't you talk to the media twice a week or something like that? Or after two games a week or something like that. Something like that would be absolutely important. But to go back to how it sheds a light on the athlete media relationship. Because like I said, everyone is different. And, you know, speaking as someone who wants to get into the field of sports media, you understand both sides of it. You understand that some athletes are not comfortable with talking to the media. And that should be respected. But what also has to be respected is the media just doing their job. It's just doing their job. They're trying to come up with a story or any something that will draw the attention to other people's eyes outside the sports world, okay? But the problem is that with some media, some media, and this is something I totally relate back to my sports writing class back at Westfield State University. Shout out to Professor Matthew Ferrari for teaching that class. These athletes are so under a microscope with each other and they're being basically studied like animals and lab rats and stuff like that and literally if they do one thing that is totally out of the ordinary it gets blown out of proportions you know like I talked about with Kyrie Irving he becomes the villain for saying one thing about the Celtics it's a bunch of these players you know the narrative is you know if you're from New York, the Red Sox are villains. If you're from Boston, the Yankees are villains and stuff like that. But not all of them. Not all of them. Okay, so maybe some athletes don't like this narrative because it's totally wrong. Maybe Kyrie Irving is a nice guy to be in the locker room. We don't know that unless we hear it from people who have been around Kyrie Irving in a locker room. We don't know if Draymond Green is this trash talker complains about everything until you hear from people who have been around him in a locker room behind closed doors maybe athletes don't want the attention and that's someone like Naomi Osaka she's introverted 
She gets social anxiety when talking to the media. So respect it. You just have to respect it. All right. And I think for the future, this is going to lead to a lot more compromising. I think there's going to be, you know, we're, we're seeing it with the James Harden situation or any kind of athlete who wants to get out of their current situation is they're finding the power within themselves to do what they can to get in with upper management in terms of forcing their way either out of a situation. So upper management and athlete coordination is going to be very important in the future of the sports world because the media has to do their job, but athletes need to have their rights too, you know, kind of similar to what Kevin Durant said about not being like animals compared to fans. Obviously it's very different when you have fan behavior at games versus dealing with mental illness, but these athletes are not animals. They're humans, humans, and even just any kind of celebrity in general, they don't want, or maybe they don't need a camera in their face 24 seven. And people don't have to hang on every single statement that they put out there. So that that's just the way I see it is there has to be more compromise between upper management and athletes and their rights. Because athletes have a right to stay with themselves, to be personal. But they also have a right to be out with the media and do these kind of media sessions. So there has to be some kind of compromise, and I expect that. Hopefully, when Naomi Osaka returns to the court very soon, because that's a superstar, the Women's Tennis Association cannot lose for an extended period of time. But it's all about the rights of the athlete. If they don't want to speak to the media, that's fine. You just have to compromise. All about compromising. On now to our Let's Get Local segment and the story that the entire sports world, not just the city of Boston, but the entire sports world is talking about is the big shakeup in the front office after the Celtics were eliminated in the NBA playoffs. Of course, the big change is Danny Ainge, who's been the president of basketball operations for nearly two decades, I think over two decades, has decided to step down literally, I think, a day after being eliminated. He'll step down. The questions are retirement. We don't know about that. We've heard links to possibly the position with with the Jazz. We don't know that. That'll be down the road. But he retires from this position, and Brad Stevens moves from head coach to president of basketball operations. And that, to me, I was very surprised at. Very surprised at because I really didn't think there'd be a change because the problem with the Celtics team has just been that they haven't surrounded their two stars, Tatum and Brown, with the quality pieces. They have a great starting five, obviously, with Kemba, Marcus Smart, Rob Williams, but everyone else after that, not really the, the best chances you're looking at. You know, they were too young. They were too inexperienced for this past year, and 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 they just dealt with a lot of injuries. They weren't a fully healthy team. And that's just really, I, I put 2021 on Danny Ainge because he just did not give the Celtics 
proper pieces. And obviously that has to do with, you know, some salary cap restrictions. But, I mean, if your offseason was drafting two guys, Aaron Neesmith, Peyton Pritchard, signing Tristan Thompson, and then signing Jeff Teague, who didn't even finish the year with the Celtics, I mean, that it was not a good year. It's kind of it's kind of just like a, a it's like a redshirt year. Basically, we know that this team is much better than they are, but obviously, Kemba Walker had his health problems. Smart missed for part of the season. Tatum had COVID. Brown missed the postseason. Rob Williams. Uh, they just had a ton of injuries and were never fully healthy. They were never fully healthy. But back to the change. I mean. I'm very surprised because, remember, think of the legacy that Danny Ainge has, not just as a player, but as president of basketball operations for this team. I mean, this is the guy who pulled off the trade to get Kevin Garnett and Ray Allen to team up with Paul Pierce. He traded to get Rajon Rondo, and he made this 2008 championship team. And then even after, I mean, this was a guy who basically traded one guy to build a superstar in Isaiah Thomas and created the legend of IT. And then after that, drafting Jalen Brown, drafting Jason Tatum, drafting Marcus Smart, this guy, his legacy as the president of basketball operations is more positive than negative. It was just this past year where they basically didn't have a ton of salary cap room. They couldn't make huge moves. And just, just the past year, I mean... Obviously, losing Kyrie Irving hurt, definitely hurt, but I would say the memories for Danny Ainge are more good than bad, so I salute Danny Ainge for a great tenure as president. Now, the new guy, Brad Stevens, I mean, let's talk about this guy. I mean, hired as head coach 2013, he spends eight years with the team, eight years with the team. We're hearing reports that he was very worn out after the bubble, so it kind of makes sense. But you have to remember, this was a guy who, during his first couple years, was credited as one of the great basketball minds. You know, he had some great out-of-bounds plays. And, you know, does he know talent like the president or a general manager should? Possibly. We don't know. But I think I think it's a it's a good move. It's a nice, safe move for the Celtics a nice seamless transition so all you have to fill is that head coaching position and you've been successful the past two times obviously with Stevens and then before that with Doc Rivers now we're hearing a lot of names obviously for this head coaching position the three I really want to focus on that I think would be great longtime assistant Jay Laranaga that's someone who Brad Stevens has a very good relationship with and if you want to keep everything in-house that's your guy right there, Jay Laranaga. Another one, Jason Kidd. Right now, he's the assistant for the Lakers. I mean, I will say he didn't really get a fair chance with Brooklyn and then with Milwaukee. I mean, if if Jason Kidd was coaching this Bucks team now, I mean, who knows where they'd be. But I think, again, a great basketball mind, kind of similar to Steve Nash. He wouldn't be a bad hire as well. But then one last one, Chauncey. Billups. I mean, this guy has had his name in the head coaching carousel for years now, and I think he would be a great coach, an absolute great coach. And let's remember, this was the team that drafted him back in 1997, I believe, they drafted Chauncey Billups. So to make that thing go full circle, that would be 
very that'd be a nice little heartwarming story for the Celtics if they can get him as head coach and obviously we're talking we hear Lloyd Pierce the former Hawks coach would be a name you're hearing Sam Cassell who last won the championship with the Celtics I mean I assume the options are going to be a plenty for the Celtics but those are really the three names that I'd watch for Laranaga Kidd and Billups would be to me my three contenders for head coach but for what this team should do in the offseason, I don't think this is a real blow-it-up situation. Because you got to remember, with the team, with basically the same team, credit, one of them had Gordon Hayward and the other doesn't. But this was a team in the bubble that got to the Eastern Conference Finals. And if you take away this year, they've been to the Eastern Conference Finals three out of the last four seasons. So... This is a team with a lot of good pieces. Obviously, you have your building blocks in Tatum and Brown. Now, obviously, the big story will be Kemba Walker and Marcus Smart. Can you trade them? I think, you know, it wouldn't hurt to explore options for a trade. But keeping him wouldn't be bad either because, you know, Smart does have one year left on his contract. But he's just that bulldog mentality. He'll give you a ton of energy on defense. He still has to improve his shot selections. And obviously, Kemba Walker has to get healthier. And, you know, hopefully that lingering knee issue won't be a huge problem going forward. But, again, the Vets minimum right now is really the only route for the Celtics to get some players. Because I think they're still they're still young and they just need an established player. That's, what, that's why I really love to have seen them maybe get J.J. Redick from that buyout market. Instead of him going to Dallas and having that heel issue because he brings shooting, he brings veteran leadership. You know, it's gonna it's gonna be hard to say. It's gonna be hard to say what the Celtics team should be, but they totally should not blow things up. Let's not blow it out of proportions. This is one bad year, and who knows? Maybe Tatum and Brown they'll come back healthy. We'll see this team fully healthy, and they could find themselves back at the top of the Eastern Conference. But a team that's at the top of their conference and their league, obviously, is the Bruins that I talked about in our NHL segment. And really, this segment is just going to be about what are their chances at the Stanley Cup. And I'll tell you this, that they're really, to me right now, from the eight teams that are left, there are about three that I would say could give them the toughest challenge. That would be the Lightning, that would be the Avalanche, and the Golden Knights. I think those three offenses are a little bit better than the Bruins but I still think this is a good Bruins team that can get out of their series with the Islanders I think they have to clean up their defensive mistakes and they got to limit their penalties I think if they do that they're going to be the ultimate team because I think defensively you know if you take away that costly turnover Lauzon played on defense with Connor Clifton and Charlie McAvoy they played great they played great and I think they are a very solid defensive team now, I think others outside of the perfection line are going to have to be playmakers because we know that the Islanders are going to try and shut down Pasternak and Marshan and Bergeron. That's for that's the time for players like DeBrusque or Coyle who have two goals or even David Krejci who's got five points in this postseason, but they're all assists. All right, maybe David Krejci puts one in the back of the net for one time, but. I think the Bruins have a good chance at getting the Stanley Cup. I think their biggest test, as I said, whoever comes out of that Western 
division with the Avalanche and the Golden Knights. And if they can get past the Lightning, then they've got a chance. But this is just the story that we've seen in the past for the Bruins. Great regular season, look like contenders in the postseason, and then fall behind. That's the biggest thing for this Bruins team. You know, I think Taylor Hall getting him at the trade deadline is going to be absolutely important. I think that put them over the hump. It's still kind of a wait and see to see what they can do with those teams that I just mentioned if they get that far to to see them. But a team that hasn't been doing too hot has been the Red Sox. Right now, they've dropped three straight in Houston. And really what I see with that Houston Astros series is that the series is showing why fans should have a little bit of skepticism about this team. I mean, they did get out to the best record in baseball, but they've kind of fallen back to earth. They're now two and a half back of Tampa, who's on fire. Tampa Bay Rays have won, I think, like 17 out of 18 or something like that, maybe 18 out of 19. I don't have the exact numbers, but just this offense has kind of sputtered out with the kind of pitching that Houston has. I mean, they've been outscored 18 to 4 in three of the first four game series that they have. And the offense just doesn't have that firepower. I mean, look at Houston's lineup Altuve, Alvarez, Correa, Bregman, Griel, Tucker. I mean, they have a ton of pieces. Red Sox, really their most dangerous pieces right now, Bogarts, Devers, Martinez. That's pretty much it that they've got on offense. Now, I will say Hunter Renfro having a great, had a great month of May, I should say. I mean, 319, six homers, 15 ribbies. You're kind of hoping he sticks that way. I don't know if it will be. I think he might come back down to earth, but that might be your everyday right fielder. You know, if you put... Verdugo in center, and then you can sort of swap out if you have Kike Hernandez at second base. That left field is really just your your next option you're going to look at. You could put Martinez out there when he's not going to DH. I think you have a ton of flexibility, and I like Hunter Renfro being an everyday guy in this lineup. And, you know, this offense is just going to have to get a little bit better because we're seeing the pitching struggle. Obviously, I mentioned last week with Rodriguez, the control and the command is just not there from what we're used to seeing. Nick Pavetta getting his first loss as a member of the Sox is, you know, it's kind of unexpected. But again, Pavetta, Ivaldi, Rodriguez, Perez, it's not the rotation that will really put you over the hump in my eyes. So, They're just going to have to get a little bit better to get to the Houston level of success that they are. But, you know, they're still over 500, and there's still plenty of baseball. I mean, we're only in the month of June. There's still months to go before we hit postseason in baseball. Finally, to wrap up our show, we look once again at our LOL moment of the week. And what's funny about this moment is this was a moment that was documented all the way back in episode six. If you go back, you could take a look at that. But that was back in like December that we talked about this moment. But it's resurfacing once again. So this week's LOL moment of the week will go to... 
Floyd Mayweather and Logan Paul. Now, really, the LOL should just be the fight itself because this exhibition, kind of a joke. I mean, you have a YouTuber versus an undefeated boxing legend, all right? But what makes this an LOL is what just came out from the Florida State Boxing Commission, and they have revealed that there will be no official winner for this boxing exhibition. Really? No winner? What a joke this is turning out to be. I mean, it is getting more and more blatantly obvious what a money-making scheme this is. Keep in mind, it is this Sunday in a football stadium. Hard Rock Stadium in Miami, Florida on pay-per-view, on Showtime. I mean, this is such a cash grab. It's kind of ridiculous. I mean, I can't even remember. I mean, maybe like, Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier or something like that. Muhammad Ali and Mike Tyson could headline a stadium for a boxing match, but not a YouTuber and a retired guy. Okay? And plus, you know, normally during fight weekend, Floyd would be, you know, be acting like himself. He'd be cocky. He had the, the money team or something like that. TMT, I think that's what it stands for. And he'd just be all cocky. But he's like, he's in Miami. He's smiling at Logan Paul saying like, oh, this is going to be so fun and stuff like that. No, this is not the Floyd Mayweather that we're used to. Okay? Because Floyd, he knows he's not losing anything. He's going to stay undefeated regardless. And he's going to make money. Same thing with Logan Paul. He's not going to put a damper on this. This is just going to get him more attention regardless of if he gets knocked out or not. They have said that knockouts will be allowed, or if someone gets knocked out, then it will it'll stop the fight. But, I mean, when you read the statement from the Florida State Boxing Commission, it does kind of make sense as to why an official winner wouldn't be there. Obviously, you have experience. Floyd Mayweather, 50 and old. Logan Paul is a YouTuber who's only had, like, one match, one boxing match. And then, of course, the weight difference, Floyd's around the 150 mark. Logan Paul's almost 200 pounds. So it kind of makes sense as to why there wouldn't be an official winner. And then the talks are like, there will be a Twitter poll or something like that where fans can vote on who the winner is. But I mean, this is such a cash grab. And what's funny is that no one's really, no one's really buying it in terms of, oh, this is going to be a headliner. Everyone knows that Floyd Mayweather is Floyd Mayweather. And Logan Paul is Logan Paul. They know right away that it's a cash grab. They know that this fight isn't legitimate. It's not going to make any money. Only only true boxing fans who maybe want to see Floyd Mayweather back in the ring would watch this. I know definitely I'm not going to watch it. I'm not going to waste the money on Showtime pay-per-view. A, because I can't afford it. But B, because I don't want to. That's really the only thing I see with this is that... Floyd Money Mayweather, he's going to make money. Logan Paul, he's going to make money. All right? This is just all a money cash grab. That's all this is. This is not legitimate. And, you know, this is barely even hitting the sports radar world compared to playoffs in both the MLB or NBA and NHL. This is barely anything compared to the baseball regular season. Hell, even the Julio Jones rumors are more important than this. 
All right. So I I see right through this. I see right through this. This is not even like a dream match. This isn't like Mayweather Pacquiao or Mayweather McGregor. This is Mayweather and Paul. Paul's a YouTuber who's just an attention seeker. That's all this is. So welcome back once again to Floyd Mayweather and Logan Paul. Because once again, you have hit this week's LOL moment of the week. So that will do it for this edition of Let Me Speak. Thank you very much for watching and for listening. Make sure you're dropping those likes, those comments, and make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just search Let Me Speak Podcast. And remember, as always, if you've got a point you got to get across, just tell the whole world, shut up and let me speak.